Bookmark with Lee Chambers on Cambridge 105 Radio. With Heifer's Bookshop, the great Cambridge bookseller since 1876. Our aspirations, rather than books. Hello and welcome to Bookmark. This is the show that talks about books and writing with a local slant. Our featured guest today, in a slight change to the previewed programme, is poet John Greenin, talking about his poetry and his role as editor of Hollow Palaces, an anthology of modern country house poems. We'll also hear from Hilary Cooper and Simon Schretter about their book, After the Virus, and Talia Miran chats, chats about Your Life Depends on It, How to Make Better Healthcare Choices. We'll give you a proper introduction in a moment, John, but first of all, welcome to Bookmark. Thank you. Nice to have you here. Now, as I was saying, slight change to the advertised programme, if you like. Lynn Bryan was going to be here talking about her memoir, Iron Man, but we'll be chatting to Lynn in the new year. So this was going to be a non-fiction special, but, uh, of course, that's changed. Although, that did make me think that often people assume, perhaps in a way they don't with prose, that the I in a poem is the poet themselves, not fictional. Yes, they do, and that can be a problem and probably unwise. Yeah, so for a long while, it wasn't considered the thing to uh, put an I in a poem. It all had to be very impersonal in the days of T.S. Eliot and co. But it's come back again. So I do put I into it, and it very often is me, but not always. I'll read a poem later about a bus journey, not dissimilar to the one I had today, <laughs> and that's definitely me on the bus. And some people have a, a bit of an allergic reaction to poetry, don't they? They're kind Telling of scree- squeamish. Where's that coming from? Is that from the way it's taught in school, do you think? Yes, it could be. Well, someone said it was the quickest way to clear a room to say you're a poet. <laughs> W.H. Jordan put on his passport that he was a medieval historian rather than a poet because he thought that was sort of one that shut people up. Does it scare people off? Yes. And it may be down to, to school. Really just treat poetry as you would treat a piece of music or indeed as you would treat a a show on Netflix we watch all kinds of baffling things on Netflix or any other TV show we don't worry about what things mean so perhaps we shouldn't worry too much about what poetry means I certainly respond to the sound of a poem before anything else I think Dryden called it articulate music which is a good definition of poetry I think so just go with the sound of it go back to it once you put the sounds in your head then think about meanings and double meanings and if it moves you of course that, that's important Very and important. responding to poetry do you remember the first time you really felt a response to a poem and what that poem was it was some of those early nursery rhymes and cautionary tales and little rhymes from childhood that, that touched me but then it was the big voices like Wordsworth that, that hit me when I was older and they stay with you and they stay in your head those poems you, you get to know when you're you're very young. But I try to keep up with the, the new work as well. I, I've done a lot of um, judging of, of competitions for and, and awards for young poets, poets under 30, the Gregory Awards. I was one of the uh, judges for that. So that's a way of keeping in touch with what's going on because otherwise you just find yourself going back to the, those old pieces that you loved when you, when you were young yourself. And we're going to be hearing your first choice of music in mm. just a moment. Music and poetry, they often have a symbiosis. Uh, do you feel that? Yes, they do. I sometimes say I, I became a poet because I couldn't be a composer. And classical music, well, all music, but particularly classical music, is very important to me. And I've written quite a lot of, about music. I did an anthology of other people's poems about classical music called Accompanied Voices. So, yeah, I'm trying to get at that mysterious world which, which music gives us access to and poetry 
takes us somewhere similar, but there are pictures too in poetry that's the difference and we're going to start now your first choice of music which is by Schubert perhaps Mm. you can introduce it and explain why you've chosen it it's a beautiful song from one of his song cycles called Schwanengesang some of Schubert's song cycles tell a story this one sort of tells a story but it was really cobbled together by his publisher after he died there's a baritone Roderick Williams who sang at the last night of the proms amongst other things and he asked me to write some poems for Jenny Agda to read as an accompaniment to the song so I this song I had to write a poem to to go with, and but it's a, it's a beautiful song anyway, and I think I think people will enjoy it. That was Serenade by Schubert, the first choice of music on Bookmark today from our featured guest, John Greening. John has published over 20 poetry collections, his most recent full collection being The Silence, which came out in 2019. His poetry has been awarded the Bridport Prize, the TLS Centenary Prize, the Arvon Prize and a Chumley Award. August saw the publication of Hollow Palaces, an anthology of modern country house poems, which he edited with Kevin Gardner. His admirers over the years have included Ted Hughes and Seamus Heaney, who together selected his poem The Coastal Path to be one of the winners of the Observer Arvon Poetry Competition in 1987. Well, quite some admirers are there, John. And I know you were writing poetry before 1987, but was it winning that competition that really kicked it off, that made you think, you know what, maybe I can do this? Yes, you need people to reassure you and, and other poets to reassure you. So I, mean, I only put in for that... Um Arvon competition, I think it was 35,000 entries. I only put in for it because I thought it was a lovely thought that Heaney and Hughes were going to read my poem. I didn't think I'd actually get anywhere in it. So that was a thrill. But yes, you, you need people to confirm that the talent you think you've got actually does exist in, to some degree. And why poetry for you? I know it's a big question, but why poetry and not not prose, not memoir? I'm probably too lazy to write novels. Actually, I, I did try and write a novel. I realise I'm not a novelist. I love the idea of chipping away to get at something. It's It's, it's close to being a sculptor, really, when you chip away and, and see what's, what's at the heart of, of it. So you're chipping away at the language, at the sounds of the language, coming up with something, of the essence of something. I think that's what, that's what I like. And you've said how uh, being a poet changes you, how it makes you tune in. Yes, it, it makes you attend to things. If there's a difference between a poet and, and everybody else, it's perhaps that they, they pay more attention to those things which seem insignificant. And they see the doubleness in things. And Coincidences, coincidences fascinate me, and those little things where one thing coincides with another, which perhaps everybody else might might just dismiss as nothing of significance, suddenly turns into a poem. So those moments of sudden insight, Wordsworth called it seeing into the life of things. It is uh, inspiration, is is the word, but it's it's a wonderful feeling when it happens. The trouble is, what do you do in between those moments of inspiration as a poet? Well, I, I taught myself. That's what's what I did, and you've got to earn a living somehow as well. Larkin said you know, he was just sort of to be hanging around the park between poems. <laughs> <laughs> well, we've got you here now. Oh, yes, I'm here. In between yes. poems. And you've written on a varied subject matter, just looking through the subjects you've written about nature, music, travelling, Tutankhamun, mm. Hounslow Heath. <laughs> uh, yeah, nothing is out of bounds. Everything is potential for a poem. Yeah, well, we lived in Egypt. Uh, my wife and I lived in Egypt as, as volunteers for two years. So I come back to Egypt again and again. And yeah, the natural world... We live in Cambridgeshire, but technically it's Huntingdonshire, so I sort of made that sort of Huntingdonshire my, my little imaginary world, which I write about. That, uh, I have a love-hate relationship with the landscape. I write a lot about place, probably more than about people, though people in places interest me. So, yes, a wide variety of subject matter, probably too wide, to be honest, but that's what I like in, in a work of art. I like variety, and I, I like an artist, whether it's a 
visual artist or composer or, or writer to be able to do lots of things. I like the fact that um, Beethoven could write a big, heavy string quartet, but he could also write a little jokey piece about being angry about a lost penny. Artists should be able to sing both high and low. Really. And those are surface subjects, if you like, of mm. what you're writing mm. about. Mm. You're digging deep to show something deeper. Are there... How does that work? Do you think, oh, I'll write a poem about Hansel Heath and do you know what that will talk about, how temporary life is, or are there certain themes that you keep coming back to, or does it emerge? What's the process? They come back to you. Probably best to let a poem surprise you. If you try and set out and say, I'm going to write a poem about Hansel Heath, it'll probably turn into a poem about, uh, you know, the number three bus or something. It, it's, it, I suppose it's like riding a horse. You've got to sort of control the reins in a certain way. Let the what's in your unconscious, I suppose, lead you, but not lead you entirely. So you've got to discover what it is you want to write about, and that takes decades, to be honest. And it's too easy to sit down and write about what you know is easy. You've just sometimes got to be patient. I try and write something every day. It's always, I guess, I'm dragging myself to it. But you know it will come. You've just got to trust it will come. I suppose one day it might not. But uh, that's a very sad fact. Again, Philip Larkin, he just sort of, the muse deserted him. And last years of his life, didn't write anything. I'm lucky that I'm still writing a lot. And in terms of finding out what the poem is really about and what mm. you want to say, is that true when it comes to form as well? It, it speaks to you as to how it's going to be, whether it's going to be a, a long poem, a sonnet or whatever. Yeah, that's very interesting. I have been known to set out and say, right, you know, this is going to be a sonnet, but generally you've just got to let the poem discover that for you. And sometimes if something's not quite right with the poem, you realise it's because you've forced it into a sonnet shape or something or into quatrains or four-line stanza rather than couplets. So you so just reshape the poem. Sometimes necessity comes up. There was one poem I wrote um, in the Hounslow Heath sequence about scarecrows and they were very long lines and the publisher told me they, these wouldn't fit on the page. So I had to break these lines and it messed up the appearance of the poem. I said, well, let's shake the whole thing up and turn these into sort of shape poems, poems that are actually in the shape of scarecrows. So we ended up with scarecrow-shaped poems. Necessity is the mother of invention, isn't it? So. And when it comes to putting together a collection, mm. where does that start? Do you look around and think, do you know what, all these poems are about one thing or they're all saying the same thing or do you think, I'm going to write a collection on this theme now? It really takes a long time. I end up with pieces of paper scattered over the floor. In the case of The Silence, I knew I had a long poem I had a, about the composer Sibelius, and it was a 1,200-line poem originally. I knew it was too long to publish, so one afternoon I just cut it by almost half. Just, just I couldn't do anything with it until just one afternoon, suddenly, magically, I was able to remove all this, this excess material and end up with a, a poem which would fit in a, in a collection. So The Silence, the second... Half of the silence is the remains of that long poem about Sibelius. So it's governed by, yes, what, what you have. And you want things to fit in with one another. But in practice, probably when people read a collection, they don't notice it. Some poets say it's more like a box of chocolates. You, know, you just choose the ones you like. But I do spend a long time trying to make the thing organic. And what about your own uh, internal feelings? I mean, we're going to be speaking, hearing very shortly from uh, Hilary Cooper and Simon Schretter about their book, After the Virus. So I'm oh, thinking yeah. particularly about... COVID, mm. how that affected you as a writer, how that mm. affected your creativity? Well, it's a fairly solitary life anyway. The thing to do was not to try and write about COVID because it was going to get into the poetry anyway. And it does emerge in it. There was one... <laughs> I cheered myself up by listening to a lot of Haydn's music, which is very cheerful music. And I ended up doing various projects during COVID to distract me from it, one of which was to write 
104 symphonies, so I wrote a 104-line poem with <laughs> each of the lines were referring to one of Haydn's symphonies. So bizarre projects like that helped me get through it. I asked some friends to give me some topics to write on, and I wrote, I wrote a whole series of poems and that. So it's slightly different from what I would normally do during, during COVID. So it was quite a creative time, really. There have been plenty of, of poets over the centuries that have had to endure plague years after all. Oh, thank you, John. Well, yes, let's uh, stay with uh, COVID now. We'll come back to you in just a moment, but let's uh, look back on COVID, as it were, and hear from Hilary Cooper and Simon Schretter. Hilary is a former government economist and senior policymaker. She's the joint winner of the 2019 IPPR Economics Prize for the essay Incentivising an Ethical Economics. Simon Schretter is Professor of History and Public Policy at the University of Cambridge. His book, Health and Wealth, published in 2005, won the American Public Health Association's Vizeltia Prize, and Sex Before the Sexual Revolution, published in 2010, was longlisted for the Samuel Johnson Prize. After the virus, Lessons from the Past for a Better Future came out in September. Will Hutton, in The Observer, called it original and compelling. And Sir David King, a former chief scientific advisor to the UK government, said this book should be in the hands of everyone in the country who cares about and has responsibility for our future. The book looks at why the UK was so unprepared for the pandemic from an economic and historical perspective. Simon Schretter. Histories can be full of surprises. And one of the real surprises for a lot of people is this innovation by Elizabeth I where she created, in effect, a welfare state, not funded from central government taxation, but mandated by statute and devolved in its administration to each of the 10,000 Anglican parishes. Every parish was to create a tax on it, the value of its land, that was to be used to support all categories of the poor. So they were creating a real entitlement to uh, what was called at the time relief, which meant, in effect, no subject of the Crown could be allowed to just be left by the wayside. The English Poor Law was there to provide people with cash in hand, if necessary, when prices went up. Pensions for the elderly were a big part of the expenditure. All these things that we think of as new as 20th century, they were all there. And the reason why we've forgotten them is that in 1834, new ideas about free market economics came in and the infamous workhouses were created to actually deter people from using this system. It's a great shame. We, in effect, had to reinvent it and rediscover it in the form of the beverage welfare state in 1945. You know, one of the other really big surprising things about England's welfare system is that it's been so essential to our economic productivity. This country has a, an amazing past of being a leader into the Industrial Revolution. People don't quite realise that the Elizabethan welfare state, which had been functioning for two centuries before the steam engine comes on the scene, was a lot of the reason why this country got to that point where it could industrialise. Uh, mainly by facilitating labour mobility, because with this social security system, the young could leave home and go where the jobs were without worrying about what's going to happen to mum and dad. The period in which our country achieved its highest productivity growth was 1950 to 1973, the post-war decades of the welfare state. That was achieved with full employment, 
The productivity we've had since then has never reached the levels we had in those decades. This interrelationship between welfare on a universal basis generously provided and economic productivity is something that history can teach us and has, got, and has been forgotten for the last three or four decades. The austerity policy was an incredible mistake. It should never have happened and a proper understanding of our history would have stopped George Osborne in his tracks. You look at the data, we had one of the highest rates of COVID deaths per million population and the highest economic contraction of the G7 countries during 2020. Some of the early deaths was definitely to do with lack of preparedness, despite the fact that we had a risk register with a pandemic at the top of that risk register. During the period of austerity, we lost 30,000 hospital beds. Near the beginning of the first lockdown in the spring of 2020, 25,000 elderly people were moved out of hospital into care homes because that's the number of beds we didn't have and that we needed to release very quickly for the pandemic. The lack of grip on government on planning meant that there was actually an instruction issued saying that those elderly people could be released into care homes without being tested for COVID. And the death rate in care homes, I think, as everyone will remember, during April 2020 was massive. So there are so many things that contributed to our much higher death rate. The late lockdown, which is being estimated may have cost tens of thousands of deaths because we let all these large football matches, the Cheltenham race, go ahead. So we shut down late. We then released early. We sent everybody back into pubs with an eat out to help out scheme. We had escalating deaths again, even before schools went back in September 2020. And then again, we locked down too late. I mean, you know, this is all coming out. It's been exposed in, in recent reports. Another part of the narrative is how unequal the impact of the virus was, how the people living in deprived communities doing low-paid frontline jobs where they didn't have an entitlement to sick pay, that it was those communities often much more crowded, a lot of inter-household mixing in deprived areas. Death rates were very significantly higher than in affluent areas. And those are all, you know, a lot of the messages that we draw out in the, in the book about the long-term impact of the way we disinvested in, a, in our state resilience, really. I think a lot of it was down to the cuts of austerity. I mean, particularly the cuts in the health service, but also in our public health capacity. We had no capacity to test people at the beginning of the pandemic. We actually had to, in March, shut down our testing capability because it wasn't good enough and we didn't set up test and trace until the end of May. Those were longer term decisions, but there were also very poor short term decisions. We just had a general election in December 2019 and Boris Johnson had a cabinet of very inexperienced ministers and many of them were making very poor decisions. You might use the word cronyism. There were a lot of contracts that appeared to be being let to private sector contacts without full tendering happening. It's very noticeable that the real success in 2021, that the one thing that we did right was the rollout of the vaccination programme. And that was the only pandemic contract in this country that was delivered by the public sector, not the private sector. And it was the only one that was remarked on for its efficiency and success. Sadly, we need to treat this as a dress rehearsal. This is not just a one-off 
event, its causation is clearly part and parcel of the global economy that has been built, which is pushing nature to its limits. If we don't get more microorganisms surprising us, we will definitely get climate-related challenges. So the kinds of lessons that we really need to have learned from this stress test of our society have to be taken absolutely seriously. We, we need to change because the way we've been carrying on for the last 30 or 40 years, all this sort of just-in-time stuff and free markets are all great and don't worry, we don't need plans, it's not going to get us through the next 10 years, let alone the rest of this century. What's very clear is that our society has always functioned best when its individualism has been backed up by collectivism. Yes, we are an individualist society in England, but we are not a kind of outright individualist society. The Elizabethan poor laws and welfare state were providing serious collective resources and funds and support systems so that individuals could see if they could better themselves. There was a new social contract after World War Two. The country voted in a government that created the welfare state once again, but also created universal secondary education, free health care. These sorts of collective provisions were enabling the mass of the population to be individuals, to actually get on with their lives as successful individuals. Before that, that was only an option for the upper classes and the, and the upper end of the middle classes who had the personal resources to do this. Once you really examine the history of our society and when it's functioned well, it has been a collectivist, individualist society. One of the things that we talk about is the way that a big crisis like this can really change the way a nation sees itself and change the way it sees the relationship between the government and, and the governed and bring about this call for, for a new social contract. And, and I mean, we saw elements of that in the support for key workers in the coming out on our doorsteps to clap health workers in, in the anger there was over the pay rise offered to nurses and so on. And I feel that it's hard to say at the moment where we will be this time next year and whether we'll just go back to business as usual and people will forget about it or whether there really will be a groundswell of people saying, no, look, this just wasn't fair, it wasn't managed properly. We present data in our book showing that the total stock of private wealth in this country was three times national income two or three decades ago. It's now seven times national income. And we haven't captured that. We just haven't reformed the way we tax wealth. We've got council tax that's based on 1991 valuations. We've got capital being taxed less than income. There's a whole set of anomalies that could very easily be addressed and would raise a very considerable amount of money. So if we've got patriotic millionaires starting something like that off, I'm hopeful that maybe it will get picked up. And After the Virus, Lessons from the Past for a Better Future by Hilary Cooper and Simon Schretter is published by Cambridge University Press. We're talking on Bookmark today to poet John Greening. John, that book by Hilary and Simon, uh, you have collaborated many times in your past uh, on work, haven't you? You enjoy collaborations. I do. There's the Schubert one that I mentioned and the collaboration with a much more famous poet than me, Penelope Shuttle, because we, we discovered that we were both brought up within earshot of Heathrow 
airport, <laughs> the old Hounslow Heath, which used to be one of the most dangerous places in England. And we just mentioned this casually. It ended up with a 200-page book. It was a literary collaboration to the point where, for example, Penny wrote a poem, the first lines of which were, as if, as if, repeated. And I wrote one back saying, if, as, if, as. So it was, it was genuine collaboration. That was great fun. Again, about a place. And a place is, places do move me. It's a magical place. It used to be all kinds of druid temples and things there, but all kinds of stories about uh, Hounslow Heath. Yeah, and collaboration recently with the American professor in Waco, Texas, um, on a book about country houses, poems about country houses. And then also a collaboration with another uh, local poet, Stuart Henson. We've been sending each other sonnets on postcards when we were on holiday <laughs> for about 30 years. <laughs> it's a very poet thing to isn't do. Isn't it? It's it? a very, very, po- very, very sad thing to do, my daughters <laughs> would say. We all thought we ought to gather these poems together, which we did in a, in a little book called A Postcard Too. Yeah, so it's a little little history of our friendship, really. Writing is, as I said before, it's a very solitary business. So collaboration is wonderful. And presumably when you are collaborating, you're, you're learning as well and That's watching true. how another poet yes. works who, who's approaching maybe the same subject from a completely different perspective. That's right, and it becomes a dialogue. I mean, I've written a lot of plays over the years without much success, has to be said. So it's a sense of that dialogue going on as well, which, which you miss... Um, yeah. And Hollow Palaces, which you mentioned mm. there, an anthology of modern country house poems. That's a beautiful book. How did that come about? I was lecturing in Texas on the war poet Edwin Blunden, um, who I, I'd edited. got chatting to the professor who had, who had invited me over. I just asked him what he was planning on doing next, and he, he mentioned that he had this idea for a book of poems about country houses. That's something that we associate with the 18th and 19th century, the country house poem. But it's really been going on ever since as well. But it's a slightly different approach. So lots of modern poets have written about country houses, or, you know, even Simon Armitage writing sardonically about privilege and so on. So we got talking about this and thought, what a great idea for anthology. Started reading and gathering ideas. Again, Kevin out in, in Waco, me in Cambridgeshire, so I don't how we'd have coped without WhatsApp and, and mm-hmm. <laughs> social media, I don't know, and email. And we gathered together this huge, uh, sort of almost 400-page anthology, which was illustrated by my daughter Rosie, which was a great thrill. And it just came out a month or two ago. Lots of poems about about these amazing buildings. I think it's a good read. I'm glad you, you yeah, like it. Yeah, it's beautiful, but it would have mm. been uh, nice doing the research for that, I would imagine. Yes, well. sadly, we didn't travel to many country houses, but travelled in imagination, certainly, yes, yes. Well, let's hear your second choice of music now, which is Sibelius. Tell me about this one. Well, Sibelius has been very important to me for since I was very young, and at the back of my mind was always to write a poem about him, and I ended up writing this poem I mentioned before, which is really about the creative process but I thought we'd listen to the Swan of Tuanela, or Tuanela. I think people will recognise it when they hear it. Beautiful, beautiful, tranquil piece of music. The Swan of Death, who floats on, on the, this hidden, hidden lake, evoked by the solo Koronglai. Glorious piece of music. Bookmark with Lee Chambers on Cambridge 105 Radio. With Heifer's Bookshop, the great Cambridge bookseller since 1876. Our And our featured guest on Bookmark today is the poet John Greening. And John, you're going to read some poetry for us now. I am. And this one's simply called Two Roads. The title comes from Robert Frost, but really it's about social media. There are the fast people who check their emails hourly, engage with Twitter and multitask their way through the day. 
and there are the slow ones who never reply even to your third request and almost miss meetings and prefer pencil. The first, the fast, will be up to advise the worm, to value the cup, to out-tweet all competitors, whatever. The last, the least hurried, nevertheless, and surprisingly, it has to be said, will, as in fact it turns out, succeed just as well, catching what the others were moving so quickly they missed, the prize deep feeders. Little fishing reference there. I used to like fishing when I was a boy. The next one is just about a bus which no longer exists. Uh, I was su surprised to find today. The X5, which used to take me from St Neots to Cambridge. Um, this was a, a less than happy trip on, on the X5. As a reference here to Caxton Gibbet, where there used to be a Chinese restaurant which burnt down the day my daughter had booked a visit on her birthday. X5. The bus slows at the dancing blue and ignis factuous of yellow vest and chequered bodywork. There's one car in the ditch and one with an L slewed across the featureless straight run from Cambridge. Our driver rolls down the glass. Five or six hours is as bad as it gets and lets the swish and flip and grim theatricality as emergency vehicles keep arriving, cutting tools, the doors of an ambulance swung back, enter the overheated bus alongside cold rumour. Caxton Gibbet watches. So do the chicken bones at that restaurant we had booked for the day of the fire. Blinded by oncoming might-have-beens and unscripted write-offs, we are redirected out of the terrifying limelight Backstage, towards Papworth, hoping there's a way through, yelling perhaps, or gravely. I love place names. And let me just read a, a tiny extract from that long poem about Sibelius. He liked to appear in a white suit. There's a bit of old footage of, of him wandering around his, his house outside Helsinki in, in his white suit. The great thing about Sibelius is he was, he was so famous. He'd written seven symphonies. And the world was crying out for an eighth, but it never came. For 30 years, he was struggling with this, with this symphony and it never appeared. It's, it's thought he, he probably completed it and then burnt it because he was so dissatisfied with it. And that's why the book's called The Silence, because he was silent for that time. A white-suited spectre. He walks up to his favourite seat and inspects the landscape. In plain winter sun, he simply dazzles, a presence declaring its territory, warbler among the hazels. He puzzles over what it was he glimpsed as he stood to greet his wife when she came downstairs, or as he tuned the wireless to hear that commemorative broadcast, or while he was at the piano, frames flick by, their specks of dirt and light a continuo, playing as if from the window of a train he is being carried in, fearless towards the future. Birch, pine, alder. Through a wicket gate, and he's off the heath, back into his thirty years of forest, where every conceivable composition is nesting somewhere. The nearest storm-battered, the farthest, a scrub of lightweight saplings, fit for domestic consumption only. The man in the white suit, turning the leaves of his work in his head, 
a tight smile at his lips, and a cigar unlit before him, thinks what vain creatures we mortals are. Nature will always outwit us, and yet we go on learning. Thank you for that, John. I'm uh, just wondering, when, when you write, uh, are you thinking about how it will be read aloud or in the, in the head and by, by a reader sometimes many, many times? I'm probably not thinking about that, but I think poetry should be read aloud. Certainly at some point you need to read a poem aloud to really test it. It needs to be tested on the air. I read aloud as I write, much to the annoyance of people around me. But, because uh, some poems will presumably lose... The Scarecrow poem that you were mm, describing mm. earlier, uh, that's, that's going to lose that lovely shape, isn't it? It is, yes. And there's a compromise, and there's such a thing as a prose poem as well. I mean, in the end, one of the most important things in a poem, I think, is the line break. And so and when you read, you've just got to get that balance right, just suggest the line break as you read without, without overdoing it. And for the reader, there's mm. a first reading where maybe it all doesn't make sense no. and then a second reading where it starts to slot in, then mm. thinking about it more. So it has to be something that stands and bears right. several readings. Yes, and is memorable, you hope, which is why I never quite abandoned rhyme. There's Those that are kind of half rhymes in what I just read there, though you might not have heard them. And those things that get to the memory, I think, are very important. I write a lot of free verse as well, but there's rhyme in that as well, and rhythm and echo and all these other things which are elements of music as well, and what make it memorable and what make the writing go deeper. Really. And you've mentioned several poets while we've been talking, Auden and Larkin. Is there one that you go back to repeatedly? Yeats, Eliot, Wordsworth, Anne Stevenson, Elizabeth Bishop, Louise Gluck, who I was delighted to see won the Nobel Prize. A different day, different poet, really, and do they have common themes? Is there something that you can recognise in each of them that's drawing you? Maybe they too respond to place strongly, yes. And also there is some clear sense, meaning to them. I'm a bit bewildered by some poets, poets like John Ashbury and so on, who, who it's nothing connects with nothing, really. I want my feet a bit more firmly on the ground. But I never write off such poems. I keep coming back to poets that I... That I can't quite get because I'm more inclined to think it's me rather than them really. Thank you John, we'll come back to you in just a moment. We're going to take a sidestep now and hear from Talia Miranschatz. Dr Talia Miranschatz was a researcher at Princeton University and taught at the Wharton Business School University of Pennsylvania. She's now a professor at Israel's Ono Academic College and a visiting researcher at Cambridge University. Your life depends on it, what you can do to make better choices about your health came out last month. And when I met Talia before a talk she gave last month at Waterston's Bookshop in Cambridge, I began by asking her if this was a book about the health choices available to us or a book about decision-making. It is, but it's also a book about decisions that are very small and could make the difference between you being healthier or less healthy. It's about how we decide about our health, which I think is fascinating. And the world has been fascinated with decision-making for, say, the past 20 years. Daniel Kahneman won a Nobel Prize for that. I worked with him. Richard Taylor won a Nobel Prize for similar implementations of thoughts about decision-making. So we basically know how people make decisions. But for a long time, I've been looking at how people make decisions in the health domain. And that is a little bit different for a number of reasons, and one is that we live in a consumer culture where we're very well versed in what we like, what kind of coffee, what kind of shoes, etc. And then we're thrown into making consumer decisions about our health, where we are a lot less well versed, and we're scared, and we're vulnerable. 
Is it the vulnerability that puts pressure on the decision-making that maybe changes the decision-making or is it the range of options that's available? It's the vulnerability. It's the range of options. And even before you get to the range of options, it's understanding what the heck they're talking about, the language. It's medical ease. I had the best example. I was interviewing a physician and I was writing things down. Now, I was at a much better position than any patient because I wasn't ill and I wasn't anxious and I wasn't in pain. And I had my laptop. But I didn't want to feel stupid by asking her, what did you just say? Could you spell it out for me? So I didn't. That was foolish, but it happened. And I know people oftentimes don't want to feel stupid when in front of a healthcare professional. So when I got home, I looked at my notes and I saw that I had spelled bronchitis right, but every other medical term I got wrong. It was just garbled. A good thing about having had a laptop was that I could retrace. I could figure out. What did I mean? I had something to work with. That's just an example of the amount of help we need and the type of tricks that we need to use in order to stay on top of our medical decisions and choices. So language is very important. Our relationship with our doctor is vital and it's constantly being eradicated. I mean, there's telemedicine and it's a wonderful thing and I consult a lot of digital health companies. COVID has been a wonderful opportunity for digital health as well. So now visits are much more efficient. But that's also sometimes depersonalized. There oftentimes is no relationship, and that's difficult. You need a level of trust. You need to feel that the person cares for you, is not just providing care. And yet another barrier is the issue of probabilities. Now, probabilities sound like the most boring thing on earth, but the truth is that when you're offered a treatment, you must ask about the probability that it will work. Otherwise, you're operating under the assumption that if you're offered the treatment, then it's going to work. And oftentimes, this is not the case. So I write about the type of questions you should ask and how you should probe and how you should get some information that really empowers you into making the right choice for you, for your health. I write in order to teach people how to have good decision-making processes. But I have no skin in the game of the outcome. And they can choose things that are the opposite of what I would choose. And I think oftentimes we ask the doctor, what would you choose? And that's moot. The doctor may be a couch potato and I might be a marathon runner or the other way around. And So what does it matter what they would choose? But the better thing to ask is how would you choose? What sort of information would you seek? How would you treat that information? What probability would you consider something that's worthwhile as opposed to saying, you know what, it's not worth it because there's too much pain involved and it might only help three out of a hundred women in my condition and that's not worth it for me. Or that is worth it for me. But the process is incredibly important and nobody teaches us that. There are some things that you learn and sometimes you learn them with air quotes from watching television. And we all have significant medical education from ER to <laughs> whatever variant of the day. But the truth is that what we learn isn't really learning because on TV everything happens much faster. The outcomes are much nicer. So we have all this information that we need to unlearn. We have a lot of information on Google, some of which is credible and some of which is just really, really not. But we also have our brains, and we're lazy. So even if we're industrious, our brains are geared to find quick answers.
and online, they oftentimes find quick answers. And the quicker, usually the less credible. The ones that offer you one-liner solutions. That's not real, but that's very tempting. So we need to parse this from the fact of medicine and rely on the latter, not the former. I mean, doctors have been educated about communication much more over the past couple of decades about forming relationships with the patients. You're empowering the patient here. Isn't uh, there some onus on the doctor and the consultant to learn how to communicate to recognise what the patient needs? Absolutely. This is not a do-it-yourself. This is definitely something that doctors need to participate in. I started out by writing takeaways for patients. Then I thought, this is really not enough. There must be takeaways for physicians as well. If you need to understand the information as a patient, they need to explain it to you as a doctor. And that's something that they should be trained in. They need it themselves, actually, because they also feel sometimes like their job is automated and it's depersonalized and they're under enormous time pressure and they went into this profession in order to help people and they end up just working on their electronic health records. So they definitely need more training, but they also need more tools. So basically our doctors need help as well. Our medical systems need to help the doctors provide the good information that we need that's clear, that's intelligible, the good probabilities that make sense to people and there are ways to present information to people so that they will actually understand it. There's a lot of anger, there's a lot of ethics and a lot of opinions that go into medical encounters. So I wrote something for the Wall Street Journal about how dumping decisions in patients' laps is abandonment, masquerading as empowerment. And some people were really angry. And some people said, but what do you mean? I can't choose. Not every patient can or cannot choose. And there's a lot of, even ego goes into it, and a lot of lot of ideology of what people should and shouldn't be able to do. And I approach this as an empiricist. So basically I'm saying, but can everybody choose all the time? Do they understand everything? And by the way, do they want this? Am I truly empowering people by saying you can choose? Or would I be empowering them more if I said, how do you want to choose? Do you want your doctor to help you? Do you want your doctor to decide for you? That's an option. Or do you want to choose on your own? And that's really empowering, rather than saying, you do this yourself. And how did it feel for you writing this book? Because this could be a book that saves somebody's life. So I met someone a few months ago. I met him in a professional context. I've known him for a very long time. And I started telling him what I do. He said, I know exactly what you do. I heard you on the radio. And he named the date when he heard me on the radio. That was 10 years earlier. And, you know... I do a decent radio interview, but seriously, it's not like you've been to see Madonna. <laughs> Why would you remember? And he said the following day he was supposed to have prostate cancer surgery, but he had heard me. And I said, you have to ask for a second opinion. He asked his best friend to help him to figure out the information, to find out if there were alternatives. And that's actually something that I write a lot about, about the issue of alternatives in the book. And he realized that with prostate cancer, sometimes you can do watchful waiting rather than do surgery. So if you do watchful waiting, that's all you do and there's no damage. If you do surgery, you are risking impotence and incontinence. 
And I guess he preferred to do watchful waiting. And he said, I thank you every day. That meant the world to me. I've been writing, which is not easy. And I've been pushing the book with all my might. Sometimes I get discouraged, but I think I'm not pushing myself. It's not a book about me. It's a book that can actually help people and can actually make a difference. So to the degree that people will read it as patients, or as physicians, as healthcare executives, it can make a lot of difference. In terms of different healthcare systems, they operate differently in different countries. But this is a book that, because it's aimed at the patient, can be applied and the techniques that you give can be applied globally? Absolutely. I mean, in the entire Western world, I give a lot of examples from the U.S., but also examples from the NHS. English patients have it better than American ones. This system is less messed up. Money is less of an issue. It's really scary to be a patient in America. You have to have very good insurance, and you never know what sort of bills you'll have to pay. Even though not every Brit will rave about the NHS, you don't go into surgery thinking, will I lose my house? But overall, we're very similar. We all crave the relationship with our doctor. We're all confused by the language. We're all exposed to television, to Google. We all really need the same thing. And the processes we should be using are similar, if not identical, across the board. And your life depends on it. What you can do to make better choices about your health by Talia Mehron Schatz is published by Basic Books. We've been talking on Bookmark today to the poet John Greening about his book The Silence, published by Carcanet, and Hollow Palaces, published by Liverpool University Press. So, John, what's next for you then? Kevin and I do have a project for another anthology about Englishness. It's been a sort of slightly toxic subject recently, but I think there's more to it than that. English poetry as such, it's slightly tricky. And there's a whole sort of new angle on Englishness from... from uh, black and Asian community, which we'd want to get into it as well. And a uh, question we ask all our guests on Bookmark, what are you reading at the moment? I'm reading, I'm reading uh, one, one of my favourite poets, Charles Tomlinson again. He died a few years ago. and It's funny, isn't it, when you suddenly forget about a writer that you like, and then suddenly, oh yes, I must go back to them. Also picked up a novel by Robertson Davis, Canadian novelist, very so Jungian, quite mystical novelist. This one's called... Is it Murder and Walking Spirits, I think, is the title of that. And, um, oh, an absolutely dense, terribly difficult book, but fascinating book by Ian McGilchrist called The Master and His Emissary, about the left hemisphere and the right hemisphere of the brain. Brilliant book, but it's going to take me about 10 years to, to read it all, I think. It's about you know, three pages of a week. Oh, well, good luck with that. <laughs> uh, we'll come back to you in just a moment to find out your final choice of music. But a heads up there, on our next show, our featured guest is Helen Joyce, talking about her book, Trans, When Ideology Meets Reality. We'll also hear from Venetia Welby on her novel, Dreamtime, and Natasha Calder and Emma Shevchek will be talking about their novel, The Offset. But we'll sign out now, John, with your last piece of music, which is Haydn. Whenever I'm feeling low, I turn to Haydn. Mozart tends to get all the attention. Sometimes people think Mozart and Haydn are indistinguishable, but they're not really. And Haydn is just, he does sheer joy, like no one else really. And sometimes that's what, what you need. I love all the melancholy stuff, as you know from some of my earlier music, but for sheer joie de vivre, Haydn is the man. And got me through the lockdown listening to Haydn. I listened to all 104 symphonies <laughs> in sequence uh, to, to get me through. Uh, if that doesn't drive you mad. Well, Haydn wouldn't, that's the point. He, Haydn is, is eminently sane and civilised. 
and uh, we need to be reminded of that now and again. Thank you.